Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Tossing and turning all night like a salad? It's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker, and I thought, if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate, so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. I'm Jill, and this is the Sober Powered Podcast. I'll tell you how I finally stopped chasing the buzz and what I've learned along the way. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and if you're new here, I'm a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. If that sounds interesting, please subscribe. Today, I'm going to talk about endorphins and opioid receptors. I'll explain the history of opioids as medication, how we discovered endorphins, and how endorphins and opioid receptors relate to addiction. 
You'll learn about how alcohol alters the opioid system in the brain, reinforcing more drinking. I'll end the podcast by talking about what I think is the coolest research on endorphins and alcohol addiction, so make sure you listen to the end. So with that said, let's dig in. Fossilized opium poppy seeds have been found dating as far back as 30,000 years ago, suggesting that opium has been used by humans for a very long time. Arabic physicians began using it to treat dysentery and has slowly made its way around the world. In 1799, Frederick Turner discovered the major active ingredient of opium, which he named morphine. Morphine was able to be isolated from opium in 1805, and by 1827, Merck was selling it. It became very popular by 1857 when the hypodermic needle was developed. This is also when we realize how addictive and destructive it can be since needles allowed a much higher dose than what people were previously getting. Chemical modifications to its structure were made and heroin was synthesized in 1874. It was actually marketed as a non-addictive cough suppressant by Bayer in the late 1800s. Morphine and heroin are considered exogenous opioids, meaning they originated from outside of the human body. In 1974, there was a very small conference of less than 50 scientists at MIT, and the first public disclosure of endogenous opioids was made. So if exogenous means coming from outside of the body, then endogenous means originating from inside of the body. So scientists announced that they isolated a material from the brain of a mouse that was reversed by naloxone, which is sold under the name Narcan and used to rescue people from opioid overdose. So they found something in the brain that naloxone disrupted. Concurrently, in 1973, three different groups of scientists identified opioid binding sites in the brain using radio labeling. The experiments worked by using radio-labeled naloxone or morphine to see where they bind in the brain. When a molecule is radio-labeled, that means one of its atoms is radioactive, so then scientists can just search for the radioactivity. These experiments are pretty common and also really cool. One very famous experiment called the Hershey-Chase experiment used radio-labeling to discover and confirm that DNA is our genetic material. Before that, it was believed that DNA actually did nothing and proteins carried all of the information for inheritance. They ended up receiving the Nobel Prize for this discovery. Highly recommend that you read about it. It was a very interesting experiment. Endorphins are endogenous morphine, and they get their name by combining those two words into one. So remember, endogenous means that it comes from inside of the body. So endorphins are opioids that are naturally produced in the body and mainly function to block the perception of pain and cause pleasure. They're usually associated with runner's high. So they're very interesting molecules because they function as neurotransmitters in the central nervous system and as hormones released by the pituitary gland in the peripheral nervous system. Endorphins are released when the body perceives pain, and they're also associated with states of pleasure like laughter, love, sex, and delicious food. 
There are three main types of endorphins, but beta endorphins have been the most studied and relate the most to addiction, so I'm just going to focus on those. So whenever I say endorphins from now on, I'm talking about beta endorphins. Opioid receptors are present in a lot of places, which allows endorphins and opioids to be involved in a lot of different bodily functions beyond pain and pleasure. They also play a role in movement, mood, stress, temperature regulation, urine production, and in the respiratory, gastrointestinal, and cardiovascular systems. There are also a few types of opioid receptors, but the most applicable to addiction is the mu receptor, which bind beta endorphins. Mu receptors are present throughout nerves in the peripheral nervous system. When beta endorphins bind, it creates pain relief. So if you remember from episode eight, we talked about the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. When beta endorphins bind to mu receptors in the brain, it results in the suppression of GABA and more importantly, the release of dopamine. As someone abuses drugs and alcohol, changes happen to the brain's reward system. The body will actually release more endorphins than required, which causes more dopamine to be released and a greater amount of euphoria. So alcohol can do a few things. It can alter the activity of endorphins. It can also mess with the binding capacity of endorphins to the mu receptor, and it can alter the amount of opioid receptors in certain parts of the brain. These alcohol-induced changes were found to vary depending on the species or strain used in animal studies. So different strains are the same species, but they do not have identical genetics. So think about the flu. Every year there are new strains, but they're all still the flu. They just have slightly different properties. This means that all humans won't respond the same to alcohol. Depending on our genetics, we may have more alcohol-induced changes to the brain, or we may not have any. Thinking about it this way, you can begin to see why some people become problem drinkers, and others, regardless of how much they drink, never develop an issue. One strain of mice are genetically altered to not express the mu receptor. What researchers have found is that these mice show a decreased preference for ethanol solutions. So they just naturally don't want alcohol that much. So if they don't have the mu receptor, there's nothing for the endorphins to bind to. And remember, endorphins binding to the mu receptor is what stimulates dopamine release and that reinforcement. Clinical studies have shown that opioid receptor antagonists, meaning things that block opioid receptors, decrease alcohol consumption in people with alcohol dependency. So an opioid receptor antagonist would be something like naltrexone. So it binds to opioid receptors very strongly, but it doesn't interact with them. It just blocks them. So when you drink and you have an endorphin release in response to alcohol, those endorphins don't have anywhere to bind. And if endorphins can't bind and interact with the opioid receptors, then no dopamine will be released. So it's ideally supposed to eliminate the pleasure that you feel from drinking. Epidemiological studies show that genetic factors and family history play a significant role in a person's vulnerability for developing a problem with alcohol. Twin adoption 
cross-fostering, and pedigree studies all suggest that alcohol runs in families. This makes us think that there's a specific alcoholism gene, but that's not true. There are many genes that can either be protective or put you at high risk for developing a problem with alcohol. And beyond that, not all of our genes are even turned on at the same time. Sometimes environmental factors can play a role in how a gene is regulated. So just because you have genes that put you at risk doesn't mean that you will necessarily develop a problem. Studies have shown that sons of people with an alcohol dependency have a four to nine times greater risk of becoming an alcoholic than sons of non-dependent parents. So there's both a genetic and environmental component of developing a problem. So it depends on the genes that you carry and how you grew up. Genetic factors can also lead to more mu receptors and a greater release of beta endorphins in the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, both parts of the brain that we've discussed a lot in reference to addiction. So remember, alcohol stimulates the release of endorphins, which in turn stimulate the release of dopamine leading to alcohol reinforcement. Since it feels really good, we're going to want to drink again. As a reminder, the ventral tegmental area is right in the middle of the brain. It receives information from other parts of the brain that tell it how our fundamental needs are being met. It then sends this information to the nucleus accumbens, but remember, Neurons communicate through neurotransmitters. So the VTA sends this message using dopamine. And the increase of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens is what reinforces our behavior. We feel pleasure in response to satisfying a need, which makes us want to do it again. So if you have more mu receptors in the VTA and or if you just release more endorphins, when you drink, then a stronger message will be sent to the nucleus accumbens. A 2001 study looked at young non-alcoholic individuals with and without a family history of alcoholism. They found that people with a history of alcoholism showed lower concentrations of blood beta endorphin levels in the early morning and a greater increase in beta endorphin release after drinking alcohol. This means that some people who are at risk for developing a problem with alcohol have naturally lower endorphin levels, and they release a greater amount of endorphins when they drink. And remember, endorphins make you feel good. So I have a few more studies to tell you about that have reached basically the same conclusion. In 2012, researchers used PET imaging to observe the immediate effects of alcohol in the brain of 13 heavy drinkers and 12 control subjects who were not heavy drinkers. Everyone had a release of endorphins when they drank, but participants who reported a greater feeling of pleasure also had more endorphins that were released in the nucleus accumbens. Everyone had a release of endorphins when they drank, but participants who reported a greater feeling of pleasure also had more endorphins that were released. This study also found that more endorphins release in the orbitofrontal cortex, which controls things like decision-making, led to a greater feeling of pleasure and intoxication 
in the heavy drinkers, but not for the control drinkers. So here is a quote from one of the researchers. This indicates that the brains of heavy or problem drinkers are changed in a way that makes them more likely to find alcohol pleasant. It may be a clue to how problem drinking develops in the first place. That greater feeling of reward might cause them to drink too much. What this means to me is that as we begin to abuse alcohol, the brain adjusts to make alcohol feel even better for us, which makes us want to drink more alcohol. So in my experience, alcohol felt amazing for me. Every time I would drink it, it was just the best thing ever. And my husband, who's a normal healthy drinker, would drink alcohol and it would be like, whatever. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't horrible, it was just like, he's drinking alcohol. So this research is really validating that, of course it felt better for me than it did for him because I had been abusing alcohol for so many years that my brain adjusted to make it feel even more amazing and he didn't have those changes to his brain. So I think the most interesting study comes from researchers at McGill University in 1989. By then, it was known from twin and adoption studies that genetics likely contribute 50% of the risk, with environmental factors contributing the other half. What these researchers found was that inheritance determines our natural levels of endorphins in the blood. They found that people with a high genetic risk for developing alcoholism had half the natural endorphin levels as people with low genetic risk. Having naturally low levels of endorphins may contribute to higher levels of stress and less sense of safety and connection, even as children. So this is the coolest part. What this team found was that alcohol was able to fix the low endorphin levels for high-risk people. And at high levels of alcohol, it even produced an excess of endorphins. This suggests that some of us may find alcohol so amazing because it becomes a solution to naturally low endorphin levels. And I have data to show on the Sober Powered Instagram account that will show you the difference between a normal drinker having alcohol and a problem drinker having the same amount of alcohol. And you can see a huge difference in the endorphin levels, which represents the pleasure that these people are feeling. So this information is not meant to give you an excuse. So because I have naturally low levels of endorphins, I have to drink. Even though developing a problem with alcohol is not our fault, it's still our responsibility. So there are ways that we can boost our endorphin levels without drinking. Exercise is probably the best way. I find that having a routine of exercising first thing in the morning sets me up for a better day, even if it's just a slow walk listening to an audiobook. Other options are meditation, acupuncture, sex, laughing with friends, chocolate, doing random acts of kindness, getting a bit of sun, getting a massage, or enjoying a hot bath. So instead of just slamming some wine to get the endorphin boost we're craving, there are so many other options. So try to work a couple of these into your day. For me, I utilize morning exercise, being kind to other sober or sober curious people on social, laughing at junky reality TV, 
and a Saturday night dessert. I hope this was helpful and interesting for you to just understand more about how the brain works. So I know that we all hear dopamine, dopamine, but there's a lot more to it. And there's a lot more behind just dopamine reinforcing drinking more. And with that, I'll talk to you guys next week. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.